Or welcome everybody to another episode of Break the Rules. I am Left Poliakov at Leftpo on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. Don't forget to do that. And we have a very exciting episode here. Of course, the great Giovanni Panicchietti, as always. And we have Hotep Sophia, returning champion. Hotep Sophia, thank you so much for coming in. And we've got Samuel Hammond in the house. Thank you so much, Samuel, for coming in. And a little bit about Samuel. I will let uh, you uh, do the full introduction yourself, but you are direct. Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy, uh, pluralist, the world is second best at best, and you are part of the Nixon and Center. So are you the Director of Poverty and Welfare Policy at the Nixon and Center? Yes, Niskanen. 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 Yes, Niskanen. And shout out to Pilita over there in the chat and Philip Daniel. Welcome, everybody. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about Niskanen? Uh, I read about it in Wikipedia. It seems like a very interesting organization. Yeah, sure. We're a DC-based think tank. Uh, we today describe ourselves as moderate. I, I would I would say that um, in many ways we're trying to be the moderates that we want to see in the world. Right? Um, there's an awful lot of uh, disaffection with centrism in America, partly because it became associated with you know kind of Paul Ryanism, you know, taking away your social security and, and invading other countries. <laughs> and, and there's nothing like necessarily centrist about any of those things. So we're we're a uh, we're kind of a full stack think tank. I do poverty, welfare, labor market policy, industrial policy, manufacturing, a whole host of different things. Um, my colleagues work in immigration reform, uh, climate change, carbon taxing, um, a bunch of different stuff. Uh, but uh, I think the the underlying theme is we're trying to synthesize um, aspects of the left and the right to try to broker deals and be that kind of connective tissue in a country that's otherwise become hyperpolarized. And uh, since the uh, theme here is uh, progress, how do you define progress? I'm going to ask you, how do you define progress? And I'm going to go to Sophia and uh, Gio. Uh, you, you go to them first. I'm going to pull up a link because I actually wrote an article on progress studies that uh, I tried to define it. So I'll, I'll drop that in. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, let's go with uh, Hotep Sophia. How do you define progress? Um, <laughs> I think. I think there's a way, well, for me, the progress is actually moving humanity forward, not necessarily uh, advancing an individual's um, uh, perspective on how things for, move forward, but literally the process of moving humanity forward out of this sort of three-dimensional world that we're in and into a fourth dimensional, five dimensional sort of world and what that looks like and how people experience that. And I think that um, as we actually progress, you can see the difference. Like this, the, like I have kids. So the difference in um, my baby, uh, my oldest child who is 13 when she was a baby versus the difference in my newborn, my five-month-old uh, at five months is just a huge difference. He can do things that she could, I mean, she just wasn't doing it five and six months. And I noticed that for my third child, I noticed that with everybody's kids, they're just, you know, they're getting more bright. They're, um, you know, able to do more stuff and, you know, their systems are advancing more rapidly. And I'm sure that has something to do with technology, but you can actually see progress and, um, uh, that's, that's how, I, that's how I conceptualize it. 
do you see there being this uh, dichotomy between, on the one hand, progress when it comes to kids getting used to technology, and on the other hand, there being a certain level, and I'm not saying for your kids, your kids seem to be very well adjusted from what I was able to see, they're very nice, very outgoing, but there is still this idea of uh, the internet, and especially social media, creating a uh, social... Uh, social how do you how do you put it I, isolation i know geo like what kind of words would you use here to describe atomization, what, atomization deracination yeah. uh yeah you get the bit yeah what? there's yeah. a huge problem with that um as far as social media specifically is concerned with you know the the, the kids wanting to sort of put you know their whole lives on um you know, a screen so people can see it. And so what I've done with my 13 year old is I told her in no uncertain terms that if she puts her real face on the internet that someone's gonna come and snatch her away. I mean, that's just what, I mean, there's mm. nothing else. I, the the five-year-old hasn't gotten that far yet. She had a tablet, I took it away. She was watching TV, I stopped that too. I mean, not even TV, but just YouTube because it's just, it's, it's overwhelming. So I've taken that, uh, <laughs> from her too but I mean that's a, a, as far as parenting is concerned with progress you really need to regress like they don't need all of these bright things to look at like you give them a ball and let them figure out what to do with it for four hours that's you know a, a better situation than letting them sit in front of the tv eight ten twelve hours you know especially with this whole covid thing you know um, my kids were already homeschooled but they did go to a physical building um because they were in a co-op but then once that stopped it was just like okay now what am I going to do there's no way I could just let my kids sit you know in the house and do nothing all day every day for months and months on end like some other parents have so um I took the approach of look outside is safe we're going to find stuff to do outside and we went somewhere almost every day like we just I just had to because I said there's no way we're going to sit in the house and get caught up in this whole TV uh, all day, every day, um, you know, internet, whatever is going on. We want to have to find something to do. And it was very, very difficult. And I'm the only one of my friends who went to the extremes that I did and have gone. Um, and so uh, progress for as far as education for me would be to regress. Like everybody should just stay home and do the homeschool thing and literally like join groups of activities and, and you know, go to the park and all that stuff to me seems like it's better than, you know, having the government at any at any time decide, oh, schools are gonna be closed for a whole year. Boom, you're done. And and where in, in Maryland, schools are not really reopened yet. They just reopened. But my friend was like, this is their first year of high school. They've already been home for six, seven, eight months. They're not going to go back to school for a month. And so, like, it's just been, like, horrible, horrible all around. And so yeah. knowing that the government can now do that, I just decide I'm not going to put myself in a position where the government could do that to me. Well, this uh, brings up a very important point, which I wanted to get into as far as progress goes, as far as who ends up pulling the levers and what effect does that cause. Uh, so, uh, Samuel, when it comes to the kind of things you guys are thinking about as far as uh, policy goes, what I'm curious about here is uh, actually from uh, Geo's perspective, because I think Geo is able to talk about this more eloquently than I can, honestly, when it comes to certain things that, let's say, may end up being missed 
by certain mm -hmm. uh, think tanks like Geo. We had recently a very interesting program on governance, and we had uh, Mark Terrell on, and his whole thing happened to be a lot more, you know, with uh, by the numbers uh, thinking, more managerial style thinking. And a lot of the people in the chat and in the comments, uh, they reacted pretty negatively towards that as far as certain unintended consequences that come about when people plan things mm. out. So I want to get to the root of this because I don't want to yeah. hold back. I really want to find out like what the big disagreement here is. If there is a disagreement, maybe we don't disagree at all. So Gio, take it from here. Well, well, it's f funny uh, Hotep Sophia mentioned about schooling because um, a friend of the show, uh, Justin Murphy, recently had a podcast on his uh, other life podcast with a good friend of mine, uh, Nina Power. Uh, they were talking about the works of Ivan Illich, who, who basically invented the concept of unschooling and how um, taking works from such people as Michel Foucault and talking about how um, the modern school system itself is like a form of like disciplinary um, regimentation. Uh, so, but the, but the, it's interesting about, you, you mentioned the, the Tyrell stream, because I think just to start off really quickly, the idea of progress itself is like, this is going off of the Nesbitt book, right? The idea of progress. Um, do you define it so much as in material terms, as in the quant the quantifiable aspect of the most amount of people having their material conditions met? do you define it that way? And also the way of like just basic accumulation. So we live in an advanced consumer society. Um, how come the rest of the world can't be an advanced consumer society? Or is the idea of progress something that is more localized as it was back in the day or tied to um, a certain culture's particular notions of what it means to advance themselves and their interests and their people and their ethnos and their culture and religion, so on and so forth. So this was when Nesbitt was trying to do in his book. Well, actually it's three volumes. And uh, what, what is the book called? It's called the history of the idea of progress. It's very foundational. Like a lot of Marxists took inspiration from it, but there's a lot of flaws in it, obviously from my perspective. Uh, but he, you know, he says how Christianity was a vector of the transformation of the idea of progress coming from, the idea of like localized, usually Hellenistic cultures and something that is a notion of progress that is for all people at all times, greater salvation. Now, the problem is, of course, when you take that and you secularize it and you turn it into a political idea, which, you know, people on my side of the thing of the, you know, spectrum, uh, they, we talk about this a lot, like how there's uh, groups of, uh, you know, new religions and it's a quasi Gnosticism that people have this idea of progress and equality and so forth. And we'll get into that obviously, but just from the perspective of think tanks or, or so forth, I think the problem is um, in general, I could be wrong. Obviously we have someone who is representative of a very prominent think tank. Um, the idea of like that there is one sort of like governing global post um, post cold war, you know, end of history consensus and that it's just up to the rise of the, you know, PMC uh, pro managerial class, the, <laughs> the state to just uh, come in and, and instantiate itself in that and nations are going to erode and therefore we need an expert class to come in. And so, and, and well, is that, is that the view though? Like I'm curious, Samuel, well, for most say, people, you know. yeah, but, but Samuel, would you say that that is the oh, view before, or where do you, and before that, I would, would just, stand? yeah, I would just okay. say that Samuel has a very uphill battle because it seems that centrism is, uh, <laughs> it's uh nobody's buying put it that way uh so peace sells but who's buying 
Yeah, it depends what you mean by centrism, right? There's these different kinds of centrism. Uh, Michael Lind mm-hmm. famously talked about radical centrists being the, the least represented part of the American political spectrum. You know, I, I, I came out of a libertarian world where uh, people would get it off saying that they're socially liberal, economically conservative, which mm-hmm. represents less than 1% of yeah. the American people. Um, that's not the kind of centrist I am. I, if anything, flipped that on its head. Um, I'm, I'm a methodological centrist in the sense that um, I'm not picking sides or being a partisan. Um, I want to uh, try to broker deals, partly deals that represent um, that kind of radical centrist vision, right? Because on some things, you know, Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren will agree, or uh, Mike Lee and AOC will agree um, that we should, let, you know, let's say, uh, do medical research into psychedelics, right? <laughs> or or um, yeah. a, a, an issue that I work on, uh, child child benefits. Um, the Biden uh, admin just passed this uh, expanded child tax credit, um, which um, I've been working on for about four or five years now. Um, simultaneously, Mitt Romney put out his own proposal for a, a child benefit um, even, that was even more generous, right? And and they're coming at this not as a, as a kind of, a, you know, a, a shadowy compromise, like, you know, quote unquote, bipartisanship when, you know, Joe Lieberman and John McCain go into a smoke-filled room and come out with a something everyone hates. It's, 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 it's more like, uh, yeah. it's more like Mitt Romney and Michael Bennett go into a, uh, a public square and come out with something everyone likes. <laughs> right? um, at least in theory, these things are possible. Um, and, and they're, and they're not just possible, but they're kind of essential because the way our Congress is set up and, and the way it works, and the only, only way it gets things done is if it, uh, uh, if you get the 60 votes, at least for now. Um, and what that means is, uh, you know, there are always things that Congress will agree on. They'll agree to pass the National Defense Free Authorization because, you know, uh, war making is bipartisan. But there are things that are just as important, or if not more important, that, um, you know, really demand attention, legislative attention that require structural change, that require, you know, renewing our institutions so we're, so we're not just going down this uh, doom loop. Um, and that is going to require people coming together it's not it's not going to happen with you know justice democrats or uh the freedom caucus doing things unilaterally um they they can help shape the narrative but there needs to be someone holding the center together Um, it it seems that like i forget who said it it might have been one of my twitter mutuals may have been zero hp lovecraft that said um radical centrism is actually like is in some ways overrepresented at least in terms of things like the Washington machine, if you, if you will, the, the notion, like, I think most people, not most people, it could just be because they hang out with weirdos all day online, but a lot of people believe that we're sort of living in like an era of an autonomous political class that they do things in a bipartisan way. But as you've said, they're very, they're very unpopular. Like Mitt Romney is a good example because a lot of people that do vote Republican in the GOP, I mean, whatever you want to say, I personally think they're a bunch of sellouts as well. But um, a lot of people that vote GOP, they they would say that Mitt Romney is an example of like a total sellout that has, in every opportunity, screwed their the voting base of the average Republican to have this sort of like fake media, like celebrity type of thing where he's one of the good ones, you know. So that being said, I think that the idea, like most people, it's actually crazy in my opinion. Most people would tolerate, I think a more the opposite which is more physically fiscally socialistic mm-hmm. or um more socially conservative type of policies but then of course 
the media and so forth would say that's fascism, that's Nazi that's their <laughs> position. So I don't know, but then, but yet, like you've said, the whole, the, it seems to me that, I mean, the that's Trump much closer thing, to my agenda, right? Like my yeah. agenda, my, my actual policy agenda. So take, take something like a child allowance. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, go one ahead. of the arguments for it is, well, you know, structurally it is fiscally liberal, right? Where we want to give every, right. every family in the country uh, the baseline support they need uh, in terms of cash benefits to be able to raise the family how they want. But the latter point is just as important how they want um, that recognizing that we live in a very pluralistic, diverse society and uh, you know, elite cultural preferences uh, do not necessarily map onto the preferences of, you know, that family in Provo, Utah with six kids. And um, are we building pluralism into our programs or are we doing things that are technocratically going to increase mm. GDP, but yeah, uh, are exactly. really very value laden. Right. And I see you were looking at the chat because Bruce mentioned Mormons. So uh, there we well, go. Well, we've had Mormons, Mormons on the show. So yes, we yeah we have a lot of Mormons. Well, there's on the a show. lot of there you... there's a lot of Mormons in Washington and Virginia around the. There's a lot of intelligence agency apparently. There's a lot of Mormons. <laughs> so. Yeah, because they they don't drink and they learn uh, languages on their missionary trips. Oh yeah, yeah that's that's yeah why. definitely definitely helps. But as far as certain things that people can uh, look at from afar as being okay, this policy sounds good. We're not talking about war. We're not talking about destruction. What could possibly go wrong? Like uh, Geo and Hotep Sophia, would there be any policies that do not involve war that you would say? DC, like the DC machine in general, has tried to advocate for that has resulted in uh, a lot of problems down the line. Because uh, now you have oh, the opportunity. Tons. I mean, you're you're out of DC right now, Sophia, from what I understand. But you were in you were in the swamp. You were in the machine, and now right. Samuel here is, is still in there. So you have an opportunity to voice your concerns about certain things that you have uh, that you have seen, and uh, you know, for them to be able to be addressed. Well, one thing I wanted to say is something that uh, Gio had mentioned about people not, I'm sorry, Aww. about people not being with the child tax um, credit. <laughs> I know. Well, yeah, like that's helpful now, but uh, maybe, I mean, you have to have people oh, by the way, who oh, actually will, speak closer to the mic. Uh, so you have to have people who will actually yeah. um, work in order for that to, to work out well. But um, what I was going to say about something Gio mentioned about, you know, having an elite class of people who make the decisions for basically everybody that's been an ongoing issue in the black community because of the whole talented tenth. which i don't know how this always gets brought up but this is just it always goes back to this these there's people who think that you know there should be a talented group of blacks who lead the other blacks around and the other blacks aren't smart enough to make the decisions for themselves and this is this goes round and round so i think it's interesting that it's you know always going round and round but it's everybody it just they just always think that there's a group of people that should be making the decisions for other people um and then something that samuel said that i thought was extremely important is that you have like you like you were saying about um being able to have choices in how you do things that's a lot of the problem like so for example in maryland um so i gave birth in virginia but I tried to take my baby to the doctor in Maryland. And in order for my child to see the doctor in Maryland, I had to agree in advance for them to receive every jab on the schedule at the time when I took him. Now, he didn't receive any jabs in Virginia. And I was just going to wait and let his immune system build up because of the whole situation 
me not knowing I was pregnant. I didn't want to just in- introduce a bunch of stuff to him. Well, in Maryland, that's not an option. Like, I don't have a choice. If I want to see a doctor um, with whatever insurance I have, if I want to see a pediatrician, uh, I have to agree in advance to, to a regimen of treatment that may or may not fit my child. And maybe, you know, there are people, I guess, like, who think that this sounds good, but in practice, where is my freedom and my liberty to choose what is best for my child? Because essentially the state of Maryland is telling me that what's best for my child is to receive every jab on the schedule without me having any time to look at what's in them, look at any um, case studies, do any research, compare any notes, get a second opinion, none of that. And I find that, you know, that's how a lot of these programs work out. Like they say, okay, yeah, let's um, give this, you know, to these people. But then as soon as they give them to them, they put so many requirements on them that it makes it that it's, you know, not helpful. So I hear that this um, payment that's coming out is going to be, you know, Three hundred dollars per child, or something like that. Some something that rounds up two fifty for un, three hundred for over under five, two fifty for over something like that, which is okay. But um, one week of summer camp for my uh, older two is two fifty. If I was getting, um, if I was going to send my child to my little baby to um, the daycare, uh, that's four hundred dollars a week. So I understand that it's supposed to be helpful, but it's just helpful enough that if you are a person who would, who would benefit from these things, it's just helpful enough to be unhelpful. Like it's, it's just mm. enough to be like, man, this like, so I have to send my kid to now they're just going to give like, in this case, they're just going to give me the money, whether I do anything or not. Well, I can piece something together, but in a lot of cases it's like, yeah, we'll give you this, but you have to do what we say with it. Yeah. And what we say is just, you know, enough you know, to drive you crazy. Healthcare is like one of those things like in America that I truly think will probably never get solved ever. (laughs) Never. Um, I know, Samuel, do you think think it's going to get solved eventually? In my country, we have an incredibly terrible healthcare system, but at least it's free, even though it may take like a few months to get it. I'm in Canada. I'm in near Niagara Falls. So that's, yeah. I'm Um, from Nova Scotia originally. So. Oh, wow. Yeah. Down home, eh? Wow. Yeah, uh, I've only been in the states for for five years, and, and actually, oh. like a lot of this is uh, resonant to me because, well, first of all, I wouldn't be able to do my job in Canada because in Canada, policy is you know, developed by political parties. Yep. And they 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 build it out of their platform. They don't have, you know, there there are lobbyists, right? There's oil and gas lobbyists and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the actual policy platforms are put together internal to the parties. Um, the civil service is very uh, professional and apolitical. Um, here in the U.S., in contrast, um, you know, there's uh, ten to fifty thousand political appointees that staff any administration. Um, Congress is so short-changed; their budget is so the actual committee budgets and stuff like that are so small. And and over time, they've shifted into communications and things other than policy. Um, and so, literally, like my job the job I do today is only, is really only, there's only a niche for this kind of think tank job because uh, our actual institutions of government are, uh, have to outsource it uh, by design. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and that but you're, but you're saying it's pretty like scary, it's bad. but at the same yeah, time, but, but I would at the same time, 
You're saying it like it's a bad thing? To me personally, as somebody who came from the USSR, that the government does not have enough money together to do certain things that it wants to do, that's kind of a silver lining for me. Now, I know it may be different for Yeah, but uh, then nothing people, gets but... done, Lev. Or, or bad things get done because now corporations control those discourses who give money to the think tanks. No, I'm not accusing your, your, not accusing your uh, institute or think tank, of course. Of course Sometimes nothing but... is... Actually, our government is set up so that designed... nothing is done. Literally, yes. it's designed wow. yes. so that things don't get done. Like, the, the closer we get back to that in my opinion, that would also be progress because the fact that so many things are done so fast, like trillion dollars being spent in like, you know, a second, a blink of an eye, like that's not actually, it's fiscal process progress, but it's not actually progressing us mm. towards the constitution the way that it should be. Because yeah. right. if the government isn't working, then it's not just the government that the United States is made up of. The United States is made up of citizens of the United States who do work, who start businesses, who employ people, all kinds of stuff gets done. So what I want to concentrate on here, Samuel, is what uh, Hotep Sophia was just talking about as far as there being certain traps out there, certain fly traps, whatever you want to call it, of, let's say, giving people just enough to get by, but at the same time keeping them within a certain kind of system that's going to make it that much harder for them to escape from. So I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on, uh, on on that side of it. Yeah, no, I think about this issue a lot in the poverty context because um, that that's where a lot of my primary work is. This sort of uh, the, that this poverty trap dynamic. Are, are we actually setting people up to succeed or uh, ensconcing them in, in bureaucracies that once they're sort of in those uh, poverty bureaucracies, it's sort of a one-way street. Um, yeah, I, you, you said fly trap. I like to, to talk about the uh, lobster traps, right? Because lobster traps are are uh, designed that, so for the lobster to easily walk in but not, not get out. Um, so, you know, I do think about that. I think I, I, I take a little bit less cynical of a interpretation because I don't think it's that, you know, uh, elites are designing these programs with the intention of keeping people down. I think it's more so that um, just take healthcare. Solving healthcare is incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, it's not, it doesn't, you won't solve it by, you know, being more passionate it, 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 or like insisting that we need it even more than <laughs> uh, just, or like thinking harder. Like it, it actually is um, this balancing act of different interests from the hospitals, to the doctors, to nursing associations, to insurance companies, to pharmaceutical companies, all these different actors have their own interests. They're all pulling in, in different directions. Um, any, any change you make to the system because it's in such a balanced equilibrium will create winners and losers. Um, and because we have a political process that's driven, uh, that you know, is, is short-staffed, under, under-resourced and uh, very partisan, there just like, there's no um, easy pathway from here to there in, in, in terms of imagining a better, better model. And but, but let's, oh, go so, so what that requires are, are kind of like policy entrepreneurs, people who are actually working towards a common good or a general general interest and not, uh, you know, being the pharma lobbyist or whatever that has a very narrow interest. And there's just hasn't, there, there just aren't those, as many of those actors in DC as there used to be. Um, you know, partly it's because we don't have the parties playing that role where they can take a bigger picture role. Instead, the parties where it's the DNC or RNC are basically just brands, empty, hollow brand names. Um, uh, you know, we have a, uh, uh, the, the kind of committee process is incredibly fragmented. Um, you know, just it, it, a lot of these things are really institutional failures. And it's, 
uh, is it's a challenge because you want someone to blame. You want someone to scapegoat. You want to say this is broken because, you know, Bill Crystal and Paul Wolfowitz did it or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, they did the, they did their own uh, shitty things. But it's uh, it's more it's more that we're undergoing a, a serious sort of institutional failure, state capacity failure. You know, why did it why did it take the Department of Defense over a year to develop their own cloth mask? Like, well, that, I, I, want absurd, to rewind, right? I, I want to rewind things back a bit to what you said, where you take a less uh, Machiavellian approach as far as the intentions of people. Less I'm cynical. Very, yeah, less cynical. Yes. Well, uh, very... the, everyone is cynical. I agree. But there's no um, there's no, uh, you know, uh, there's no Illuminati that's like organizing this. This is sort of this is just chaos. <laughs> But here, but here's what I'd like to do. I would like to find out how do we know what we know. So, for example, how do we know that when we are talking about the Illuminati or, I don't know, Bohemian Groves or Bohemian Grove, sorry, or whatever you want to say, how do we know the amount of influence people who, let's say, have certain needs in mind and are probably going to be pretty greedy how do we know how many of them it would take to create the kind of chaotic system that we currently have versus how much would it take in terms of honorable people, in terms of uh, there was an interview that I was watching uh, at on the uh, Dick Cavett show with uh, Orson Welles. Great interview. Was yeah. Oh, you saw that too. Great. So you know what I'm talking about. Like he was describing, um, uh, what was his name, uh, G uh, George Marshall and how much of a magnanimous character uh, he was when he was talking with the soldier without any of the cameras on. Like, he didn't know he was being, uh, you know, shot or recorded or whatever. And my concern, and this is the concern of a lot of people who, you know, spend a lot of time on the internet and just look at all the ways that uh, things are going wrong right now, when they take a look at a lot of the people who are in charge and a lot of the people who are in the back, they don't see that same honor and I don't know if there is that honor and they're just not seeing it, how many people have that honor, and uh, generally what would it take to restore that honor back. But that's the only reason why I would, you know, even though I try to be as neutral as possible when analyzing this, because I don't really know what's going on ultimately, how much credence would you give to this idea that there is a lot more of this um, cynicism going on? And not only that, but there is a lot more, even though in, let's say, more established circles, it would be considered a faux pas to even mention something like Bohemian Grove, for instance. And as somebody, no, as somebody who just wants to approach it very rationally, what can we say? We can say that there was that one interview that Alex Jones did with, uh, what's <laughs> his name? That David yeah, David Gergen. So yeah. as a, as a scientist, let's say. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So as a scientist looking from the outside in, what can I observe there? I can observe that Mr. Gergen admitted to there being these ceremonies that people take part in. Nixon also admitted the same thing, you know, although he had a thing or two to say about those ceremonies as well. I would be, I would be anyway. disappointed if there weren't, you know? Yes. <laughs> but, but what I'm getting to here, but what I'm getting to here, Samuel, is that we already have evidence that, yeah, people who have a lot of money and power and influence meet up. Maybe it's just for frolicking around well, look at Bill Gates, in the Linda Gates, or... what she's saying about Bill. No, I'm sure, just... you know, George yeah. W. Bush, like, played Okie Cookie with a, a prince of Saudi Arabia. Sure, I, yeah. I, I, I guarantee <laughs> it. But, no, I guarantee but, but the important, it, but that's not that's but the... important question uh, for the American the, people, the, 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 the leap is, for American people is the influence, and that's what yes, I don't know. Yeah, the leap is ascribing um, sort of puppet master competence to those kind of uh, organizations, which oh, which yeah. they simply lack, right? It's not... Um, uh, 
I think people uh, gravitate to those kinds of conspiracy theories in part because uh, to accept the alternative hypothesis that um, that they're that that they're just this incompetent uh, is almost beggar's belief, right? Um, but yeah. it's 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 but a mixture of inco- it's a mixture of incompetence and incentive. Um, because like DOD can't even make a mask in a year. It's, it's incentive alignment problems left, right, and center. But, you, but, you have California, this... but California, at least as Adam Carolla said, it did not take them a long time at all to repair the uh, faulty, uh, what do you call it, those uh, machines that you put the coins in for the cars. You know, right, so yeah. when it comes Click to it getting ticket, people's right? money, yeah, exactly. When it comes to getting people's money, the government is like flash. Right, well, you that, know? that goes so, to the incentive alignment problem, right? In D.C., we have yeah. um, these automatic... Uh, uh, speed cameras, right? And you know, they they get you for like a hundred dollar ticket coming into a tunnel. Where you have to be going is like <laughs> not ten miles over the speed of it's crazy, right? And that, that's an incentive problem too. Like you know, civil asset forfeiture, the fact that police will just take your shit and not give it back to you, that's because they can just get away with it. And, and there's not like you know, uh, or or in the case of uh, uh, our bigger. Or, bigger institutions like the FDA. Why'd the FDA fail uh, in this crisis? Why'd the CDC fail in this crisis? Well, because their incentives are such that um, they face different consequences from errors of omission and errors of commission. If the FDA releases a drug that leads to uh, you know, a death, then they are in big trouble. Um, but if they don't release a drug that could save many lives, no one ever notices. So that those sort of asymmetries and those kind of incentive problems uh, covered the gamut in, in, in across a lot of American institutions. Sometimes, sometimes when people do die, they don't notice. I mean, if you just look up, for example, uh, what was it, the birth control pill in Puerto Rico? Something like that, the, the early... Mm. The flamidahide? Uh, or, or yeah, and flamidahide is another one. Right. Yeah, um, but we have two super chats. Uh, because oh, yes. Of, but I do want to ask you about how, how do we... Ins- it, if incentivization is enough and how do we do it? But before that, uh, Spiced for $5. Thank you, Spiced. Uh, get John Michael Greer on stream sometime. Yeah, well, I mean, Meta Nomad's friends with him, so we'll probably we're gonna work on it. He's. And I the, do want to get John Michael Greer on. Absolutely. And maybe cool maybe against a transhumanist. Pig. Who knows? Yeah. And cool fat pig donated five dollars. Hey, Lev, can you please tell me the Russian word for book? Uh, uh, the Russian word for book is knishka or knishka. Uh, kniga. Or kniga. Kniga is the uh, you know the less uh, the more relaxed term. Mm. And also he says also Geo is incredibly handsome today. Oh thank you. Oh that's but, adorable. And well, I'm meeting Iron I'm Bob. meeting a lady friend late. No, well I, that's not a lie actually. La la. She's a friend I've had, but uh, nice and not a girlfriend, but um. Anyways, <laughs> and last uh, one. Uh, last $20. one. Twenty dollars. Super Iron Bob. Thank you, my friend. Woo! I said Amazing. it once. I said it a thousand times. Hashtag demand better leads. Hashtag bring back noblesse oblige and this is a response yeah. to godward podcast who said that um america was an experiment in replacing having a king who was supposed to check the oligarchs with laws the law the nomos provided proved less effective in checking than a king might have i wholeheartedly agree mm. and of course too. uh but but you know ignore the chat sometimes they get pretty yeah. no, no that's totally right chat. uh no i think that's yeah. totally totally accurate and i think um you know if there's any sort of character characterological um explanation for the failures of our elites, it is that, um, that myth of meritocracy, right? There is, there are definitely like a distribution of aptitudes and there are people who are, who are more competent at whatever, um, at the managerial kind of a uh, process. But uh, this idea that they got, they got there by pulling themselves up by their bootstraps and that they don't owe anything to society or have any 
um, noblesse oblige, as you said, uh, you know, that, that's, that's a, a huge problem. Right. And it's, yeah. um, and there's no, there's no countervailing power. Like in the past, it would have been unions uh, or church or organized parties. Um, but those things have been totally like what technocracy me- means to me in the pejorative sense is not, you know, the fact that we need an EPA to like develop technocratic rules about uh, emission standards or something like that. That's always going to be a technocratic issue because you have to like know chemistry, but it's the, this idea that we can uh, delegate all political decisions to a technocratic class and remove the kind of democratic politics that is required to organize voice, right? Because the 80% of the public that uh, that has no, no real power um, they, they'll never have power like individually. There's, there's too many of them. They have day jobs or not, they're not paying attention, but what, what political parties, membership based parties in Canada, for example, like what they do is try to channel those, those impulses, those inchoate demands into a platform that makes sense. You can do the same thing through organized religion, through churches that are able to sort of, uh, make collective action. The, the black church has very influential in, in the democratic party for that precise reason. Yeah. And the Hoda um, Sophia could talk about how it's been, um, uh, rearrange. I don't know if that's the right term, Sophia. But you talk right. uh, you, you talked to in previous episodes about what it used to be like and what it is like right now. I don't know if you're uh, there right now, so l- let me know if you're there, Sophia. Well, she's probably yeah. okay. Yeah, so she's okay. going to be back. back. But She'll real, but back. real quick before she returns, I wanted to, and I don't want to dwell on this too much, but I am kind of curious because it's not something that I have an answer to in my head. But when it does come to this question of incentive, like the examples that I gave of when an organization, when a government wants to uh, get somebody's money, when there's something in it for them, then they are going to be very uh, active and very, um, they're going to manage that situation really well. well. Well, the the reason why I'm saying this, and I just I I just want to kind of get to the bottom as much as I can. How much would you give without giving over like the whole idea of puppet masters? Because, again, I understand that a lot of things are very random and um, uh, chaotic. But at the same time, as far as influence goes today in the world without as much noblesse bleach, how much would be like the limit that you would give to the possibility of there being such people who do have incentive to influence people through money in a certain way that uh, they end up, um, you know, causing a lot of great changes in the world? And when you said before, you know, people like to play the blame game, at what point would it be sufficient to actually play the, the, the blame game? Maybe we're not at that point right now, but those would be just my two questions to kind of uh, settle that particular thing that I'm not so sure about myself yeah. right now. I mean, what part of the, if a lot of our institutional failures are actually stem from, uh, in, in many ways, in, insufficient sort of hierarchy and lines of accountability, where, um, you know, you have these sort of like standalone administrative agencies that uh, where, you know, even the deputy secretary or whatever is not really in charge, they can barely manage the thing, right? Um, and, and that's actually a source of, of the problem, right? It, we don't even have the ability to have like puppet masters directing things because it's too, too decentrally organized. And, um, you know, you look at, uh, uh, you know, some of the um, actions that were taken during the pandemic, you know, you, you contrast like a country like Taiwan where they have much, much uh, better government governance around this stuff. You know, they put someone in charge who knows who, who has the confidence to like coordinate shit and they just go do it instead of, instead of we have like, 
you know, a, a billion different stakeholders, each pulling in different directions, even, even at the level of like wealthy individuals, um, you know, there definitely is some class alignment on like, you know, what, what the core, uh, capital gains tax rate should be. But, you know, in many areas, uh, our wealthiest, you know, are pushing and pulling in different directions. Some of them are pushing really radically towards, um, you know, focusing on climate change because that's one of the, that's a big issue for, for, for many high net worth individuals. Uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. Um, you know, Chris Hughes from well, Facebook. Well, it depends. Is I mean, we got China and India and nothing's being done about them. So it seems kind of pointless. Well, yeah, actual that's... pollution that, that does destroy the environment. That seems yeah. to be not the sexiest thing compared to AGP. Right. So right. Uh, taxes. Uh, there, there have been periods in human history where there where there has been a small clique of people who wielded a lot of power. Uh, actually, actually, you know, the, the Soviet Union is an example. Um, sure. The, you know, but, th but those are actually dependent on having an institutional structure where they can wield that power and that, that they had that leverage. Um, but wouldn't and, that and I've foundations, many... though? Wouldn't foundations wield a certain degree of power today as far as influencing people with money? Oh, oh, absolutely. And I'm, I've been pretty critical of, of, of foundations. I, you know, I think, um, you know, here's, here's, a, here's a good example. Uh, uh, you'll never, ever see a foundation fund a think tank working on... Um, repealing the charitable tax deduction, right? Right. What, like, Defeat the point. Yeah. yeah. You know, Canada is another example. Canada barely has a, char a charitable tax credit. It's very, very minor. Um, our philanthropy is, is uh, uh, very secondary in that sense. Like we have actual charities, but we don't have like these things that are called charities, but really are just uh, para political institutions. Right. Yeah. And they um, punish the charities at every chance they get having, being a member of Knights of Columbus myself, <laughs> Uh, we, we get shafted all the time. We couldn't have bingo anymore and things like that. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, there but, you go. But, How could they do that? The, the monsters. The monsters. <laughs> right. I just want to comment. I, I want to comment on something Samuel was saying about um, uh, in America, we are lacking organizational structure. I think that there is a very, very distinct organizational structure. I just don't think people know what it is. And because it's been wrapped up in conspiracy theory, um, when you start to explain to people that there's a group of bureaucrats who can't be fired, uh, they just move around, they take their assignments from whoever is giving them, they don't even know who's giving them most of the time, you would say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. But it's actually an organization called the Senior Executive Service. I've talked about this before. They can't be fired. They can't, and nothing can be done without going through them. And um, one of the things that, uh, Trump was about to do or actually did just before he left and that's one thing that got really these people up in, up in arms is that he was going to make it easier to fire them because up until now the code or whatever just made it impossible in the unions or whatever just made it impossible to fire these people it's like what was happening at the VA but on steroids like every single agency every single department has these people you you know who they are because they'll tell you and a lot of times they have their, they have their own flag I mean this is the kind of thing that does go on but because you have so much of um you know how things work in America um 
you know, propagandized as a conspiracy that when you get in, when you start looking at, dang, how are these people staying in business? Like, how are, how is this person making money? Like, how does this person not get fired? I talk like, I mean, cause a lot, I'm from Maryland. So a lot of people I know are literally like government workers. And you're like, this person never goes to work. They're always late. They're on vacation every five seconds. How are they keeping their job? And a lot of the times if they're in senior executive service, they get to keep their job. They just take vacations nobody cares nobody knows that they're gone you know they retire at you know 55 they've been in the government 30 years and you know then they go on and consult i mean this type of thing if if you had to live in it like and you see like a lot of my friends work for the government like I'm like these people can't put two and two together like i don't understand this and me getting an advanced degree it means nothing because i'm not a person that can be controlled per se so i didn't want to bring that up there is a structure in this country it's just that the structure that uh exists has been labeled a conspiracy theory even though there's clearly you can clearly see that these government workers don't do anything because as the government was closed for a whole year, I still got like my tax return, the stimulus still went out, the roads didn't stop, nothing stopped. So what do these, I mean, some of them were working from home, quote unquote, but like, I know these people, they weren't working if they were at home. Uh, work is not what I would classify it as. So, um, you know, it's just one of those things that's like, the government um, works to preserve and expand its own power. And I think that's some of the things that the founders were concerned about. I, me, I put, I consider myself a, uh, uh, I don't know what you call it, but a constitutional uh, whatever. Like that's my thing um, that I sort of organize myself around. And like, and that's different from being conservative or moderate or anything else because when you look at the constitution and the constitution, you know, in the original document say gold and silver, and you see, you know, this paper currency being thrown around, then that's a whole nother set of problems that has sort of come up, which is why I think for us, like I go back to this, for us, our prog our progress would literally be regress. Like we should really just go back, like all the way back. I would be perfectly like, Mm. Happy with that. <laughs> well, well, Samuel, do you have any thoughts in this committee that uh, Sophia was talking about? Have you encountered people who are part of this committee? Uh, you mean the senior executive service? Yes. Um, I might have without knowing. As far as I understand, they're just uh, they're kind of like liaisons between political appointees and the administrative state that are sort of outside the normal GS schedule, right? Um, uh, the, the, this just they're goes beyond to, the GS schedule, actually. They yeah, they're outside it. Money yeah. that's they get like pay and, yeah, they're totally outside of the GS schedule. Yeah, um, you know, any 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 effective government has to have a well structured civil service, and you know, this goes again to a, a point that there's there's not like method to this madness. This we have a a series of civil service reforms dating back decades that are sort of pasted on top of each other um, and, and, and can create these kind of like fiefdoms, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, agencies that were established to do X and now X isn't a problem anymore. So they have to figure out what they're gonna do now <laughs> because they're definitely not gonna get uh, shut down. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy because like lazy civil servants is not, you know, that's just a fact. Like, it's more- uh, but 
It's more like uh, it's more like a, a kind of political economy. Um, but, but beyond just the lazy civil servants, uh, Buff made a comment earlier that uh, um, Samuel uh, basically said there is no overarching agenda because there are no puppet, puppet masters. So what I'm curious about here is when I'm talking about overarching agenda, I don't mean even people like forget the foundations for a second because we've already discussed them. If we're just talking about, you know, puppet masters behind the scenes, let's forget that, too overarching agenda in my opinion would be let's say when you go on twitter and you look at most profiles of like a uh, gen z kids and you see certain things that they all have in common they all fall in line with a certain paradigm same thing with people from any uh, close circle of people so the overarching agenda here i could say it's kind of like a zeitgeist it's something that doesn't necessarily have a particular person at the head yet that does not make it any less real so what i'm interested in finding out is whether we can kind of uh dissect this or exercise this particular zeitgeist to make it a little bit more familiar what exactly we're talking about here. I know Moldbug referred to it as the cathedral and uh, so on and so forth, mm -hmm. and I want to see how much of an effect does something like that have as opposed that, to just chaos. Yes. Before we kick the uh, foundations aside, uh, Super Iron Bob again for $5. Can society yeah. recover from the fallout of the Gates divorce and the incoming influx of foundation <laughs> manipulations? Um, well, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be funny... Uh, when, when Melinda Gates gets to uh, weaponize her income or her share of the uh, Bill and Melinda Foundation, I wonder what's going to happen. Um, I don't know. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I was going to say I, I'm ultimately a, a kind of fallibilist, right? Like, like obviously Bill Gates is also a fallibilist because <laughs> right? he, he could barely keep it in his pants. But the, the issue is, um, you know, there are patterns that emerge uh, that that uh, that I think elicit a lot of these sort of conspira conspiracy theories and those patterns are what deserve explanation. And, and one explanation is that we're all getting a memo saying, do this and that. Another explanation is that, um, that there are fads and fashions and we're mimetic creatures. And you see that all the time in foundations. Like I, I do a lot of work with foundations and I can tell you whether it's Ford or Rockefeller, or the biggest ones, um, they are as bureaucratic as any government agency. And the people that they're bringing in and the people who run things, they have as you know they they have as much control over outcomes as like a CEO of a big company. You know they, they get a tiny sliver of of the big picture and they and and but to the extent that the things look like they're being synchronized, a lot of that is just spontaneous orders. It's being driven by fads, fashions, and and you call it a zeitgeist. Um, well, the discourses of yeah, certain, yeah, zeitgeist is a good 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 word for it, right? Like take the '90s, like the late '90s, the kind of uh, globalization. Um, Pangalossianism and you know we're all moving towards uh, you know uh, we're going to have a North American Union, the European Union and then we're going to merge and have one big world union well a lot of that was not like being orchestrated it was just like part of the part of the spirit of the times right um, and I think one of the challenges is and, and sort of on an individual level one way you can think of like rationality is your ability to step outside that flow of history and take a third third person perspective and not get caught up in the zeitgeist. Um, and that, that's really difficult, but you don't have to ascribe any kind of like super, like supra intention, uh, to, like as if there's like one mind organ or, organism that's like 
uh, marching through history. It's just a no, lot but there of would, there would be more naked unless, unless capital yeah. is sentient itself, and then it's like right. a uh, force yeah. coming from the future invading. Right. The you know, no, the, conformism is way more <laughs> way more of a yeah. parsimonious explanation. Right? No, but that but that also mm -hmm. makes it pretty dangerous because then we get things like uh, again. I don't want to say that it's and I never compare it to Russia because Russia today also russia is much Love, worse you never than the united states to russia yes but but what i would say though is that <laughs> as far as let's say having certain sides showing certain allegiances in uh the public this is something like with the various movements that are going on right now this is something that causes a lot of self-censorship in people and i think a lot of people are starting to see that but at the same time there's also this aspect i think of grifters coming in uh, politicians, a lot, you know, grifting and politics, they go hand in hand. So when you have grifters that come in, seize upon the spirit of the times, then in a way, uh, the comment that was made a little bit before here, uh, I believe it was Buff talking about, um, you know, having uh, having this ruling class. And again, you're talking about the opposite, that there isn't this ruling class. But in a way, there kind of is, if we well, take the Bruce, position... Uh... Well, and Bruce has been yeah. very naughty in the chat. A hostile naughty, ruling, yes. yes. Hostile ruling class with a disgusting vision of how the world should be. I agree with that. That is. I was totally going to agree with what Bruce said. Like, just that well, is exactly what well, it is. Like, that, it's to think or to somehow to somehow think that the ruling class doesn't have a vision that they're trying to execute. That they're literally just hmm. sort of going along with whatever uh is well, but how much is that vision part of the fashion of the times like samuel was talking about and how much is it not well i think me personally i think it's completely orchestrated because if you just look at the weaponization of the media um that doesn't happen by accident and then the concert of which the media and the government and the foundations all work together um I don't really, you know, how can you not see, say that there's something that's not, because if you, if that were true, then Trump wouldn't have won in 2016. Meaning if people wanted the government to be, uh, the government, the media, and the foundations to all be working together and ruling our lives, then they wouldn't have to propaganda propagandize us so hard. Then there's no way Trump mm. would have won. There's no way you'd have a Marjorie Taylor Greene in Congress. There's no way you'd have a Matt Gates in Congress. Like these people wouldn't exist. They would be run Wait, out is, of is, town. Is Gates going to jail or what's going on with that? He is not going to jail. He didn't. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Well, I can meet. Oh, I can. I can actually meet in the I, middle. I personally think. I personally okay. think. Like, I don't know. Maybe it's my paranoid conspiracy, Alex Jones brain. But I think, like, maybe if you get into any position of power, I think inevitably it's going. They got either some dirt on you, or it, it corrupts your soul in yeah. some way. I don't know. That's just me, maybe. Well, there, there, there could be a part of that, that too, of course. <laughs> but I can meet in the middle between Sophia and Samuel by saying the following: You guys know about uh, the Emperor's new clothes right that uh that tale i believe that there's a lot of naked emperors out there today like i said before grifters that make use of a situation when they get into power uh there are people out there who would just not be able to say no to a particular policy and that may be a policy that would make them or their friends a lot of money it's not like orchestrated they force the policy down people's throats in the way what happened is that people would be too scared because it happens to be politically incorrect to say something bad about a certain policy and that policy ends up getting more steam and more power and the people who you know get benefits from that 
they're not necessarily kings or emperors that could call the shots uh, de facto, but, but in a way they do call the shots, but not because they have some kind of psychic, magical psychic power, but because these are particular shots that people would well, not think... necessarily question today because it would be, it would be rude or it would be improper well, for them to question them. I think there are yes. two, two, two separate things, two, different, two di distinct phenomena. One is preference falsification, which you'd be familiar with, with uh, being Russian, right? <laughs> like, like the, this, uh, this idea that, you know, before the fall of, of the Berlin Wall, that like did a survey, 90% of people would say, oh, everything's fine. But then yeah. after the fall of the Ber Berlin Wall, it's, there's like this cascading effect where you realize, no, there maybe have been a, like a core 10% of people who supported the regime, but everyone else was sort of going along to get along and didn't want to rock the boat. Um, and when they felt they were able to express themselves and reveal their real preferences, there's an enormous sort of cascading effect. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the cultural stuff going on right now has that kind of character where people, there's a core true believers of like the strongest woke social justice stuff. And there's just a lot of people who kind of want to go along, get along. And they, they're, they're not, they don't, they're not about to be a sore thumb. Um, and if there are high prestige people, you know, who start pushing back against that, there could be a cascade that also follows that. Then there's a secondary thing which is just pure motivated cognition, right? Um, and this is, I, I see this a lot being sort of an ex-libertarian and working in libertarian think tanks where you have some true believers. You have like people who are there because they read Ayn Rand or they read Hayek, uh, but they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. they're out there advocating for tax cuts um, and they only have that job because some rich guy wants this taxes cut, right? So <laughs> yeah. there, there's, there's, you have the ability to find in the kind of um, demand and supply of, of uh, think tankers and stuff like that. Um, if there's somebody who's out there, who, you know, who really thinks that, you know, uh, he's, who's on like team Azerbaijan versus team Ar Armenia, Ar Armenia, right? Like they, they, tru they truly believe that. Right? <laughs> this is a pro Armenia like, podcast, by the way. So or whatever the issue is, right? Like yeah, and take I, back Mount Tararat, take back Mount Tararat. <laughs> <laughs> so you have like true people truly sincerely believing things and they're not. So in that sense, they're not cynical, but, um, there is this tendency where, you know, we're humans and we, we tend to believe things are self-serving. Well, there, there is one interesting point um, that uh, I think Z-Man brought up. Um, let me just try to find it. Yeah, because of the charities in Canada, churches are forced to run like be run like NGOs, so pastors don't shepherd their behest of the board of directors. That's true, but also a number of pastors have gotten into trouble with uh, the Human Rights Commission for other um, reasons. Uh, um, that's then no we... different than pastors here. I, I well, no, like well then later, <laughs> no, because Leb wanted to ask you, but you you were busy uh, about the black churches that came up, about whether they do serve uh, the interests of the average African-American. Or oh, rather... can I please talk about that? I'm sorry. Without I getting too spicy, to... Hope, Sophia, but please uh, go. Yes. Okay, all right. Yeah. So this is really like insanity. So... Um, I'll just talk about it in relation to what's like, like the Corona, like when everything shut down, all of the black churches shut down without question. They didn't even say, uh, a word. And like my church at home, it's like still not open. It's been over a year. So if you think that, uh, black churches are doing anything for their people, they're not doing anything. And now with them, um, in my area, like in, in PG County, um, the churches are leading the jab drives. It, it's just, I don't even understand, uh, you know, because in the beginning people were like, oh, what about Tuskegee? And so they put out all of this propaganda saying, oh, this is going to be nothing like Tuskegee.
Tuskegee. Nobody is going to get hurt. It's not possible. Okay, cool. So, but you had the churches leading the call on that. And so now you see, um, you know, just the whole, I don't think there's a soul of black people left. Like it's very, um, uh, almost gone. And my church is a Methodist church too. Good word. So that's exactly the Methodist church is, was already think, dead before the incident yeah. because we were going through this whole big split. And since, I mean, I just, I mean, it's just one of the most uh, amazing things to watch, especially having read history. Like I'm a historian, I'm an African-American historian and looking at all of the things that black people overcame to get to where we are today and to throw it all out the window for of a virus or anything else is unheard of. The people, the the giants of our of our community are rolling in their graves. I don't ever want to hear anybody bring up MLK. Not that I'm an MLK fan, but he's rolling. He would have never, yeah. ever, ever allowed his church to be closed for mm-hmm. a whole year over a virus. Never, ever, ever. Well, just ever. To were, there, were there also well, were just there to play devil's function- advocate, oh, Sophia? Yeah. I mean, I, I think um it's a very tricky issue. Me personally, I probably, unless for travel or whatever, I mean, Canada, we're different, obviously, because they're already talking about passports and all that stuff. Uh, it's very scary. Um, I personally, I had it, you know, I'm in technically in an at-risk group because of my uh, baggage, if you will. Um, right. If, you know what I mean? Uh, and But when it comes to the vaccine, though, I think like the impetus is that um, Black people in America have been dis proportionally affected uh from the virus because of a number of health issues that go unaddressed and for example sammy you you uh, are a, a policy researcher in terms of poverty um there are a number of i i personally think that uh what's downplayed is personal health for example i i do truly believe that just the physiological differences like for example um the the level of uh vitamin d and sun exposure that that in Hotep's view you talk about is that black people need that probably is a yes factor. vitamin D is the yeah. but so why but then the when you talk about it saying, let's have church service outside you guys need to, I mean there's yeah. so well, many no, just look at like, little things like yeah. that they could have well, oh, done oh, oh, oh there's a very interesting thing that I noticed and uh, this is again my mind that sometimes like to put patterns together here but uh do you remember middle collegiate church had recently uh, burned down i believe it burned down this year it was a couple of blocks away from where i used to live in manhattan and uh the reverend of that church was uh, jackie lewis and uh she's a you know it was a very woke church like ultra woke you know like pro blm all all that stuff uh <laughs> rainbow flag but yeah. uh but uh the thing is is that jackie's brother is i believe like a either a brigadier general or a major general in the armed forces i'm not sure but i wonder like i don't want to make anything big out of that but i am curious like how much connections is there today between let's say dc between people who are within the military as well and a lot of these organizations and how different is it from how it uh, used to be back in the day uh, they move in and out of them. I mean, uh, there's, there. I mean, you'll find that a lot of these major churches have friends, especially in PG County, which is literally where the government is. A lot of these people, like our old pastor, his wife, who was also somehow being paid as a pastor at my church, was a government worker. Like they're all government workers. So they really do work at the B and that is in their benefit to do what the government says for them to do, because it's also how they get paid 
another way because as a pastor, you get paid, especially if you're with United Methodist, then you get paid whatever you're making working for the government, which is two, three, four times what you're getting paid at the church. So even as far back as the turn of the century, 1900s, you had black pastors who were getting patronage jobs with the government. Um, this is not a new thing. Um, this is, uh, you know, just something Even back in the, uh, the New Deal, they had some, in the Northern states, mm. they had like black churches that also, um, but and what, what, the... one more thing, let me say yeah. super iron, Bob, uh, yeah. College park sign is still there and literally they still want you to go to that bar, but it's not open. I mean, maybe it just reopened. Oh, and speaking of super iron, Bob, $5, another five super iron, Bob. This is amazing. Samuel, let's see how, how much of an amazing audience we have here. So he says, anything where human choice is involved follows the power law Pareto principle, where the majority of any result is a consequence of the acts of a few. Would you agree with that? Uh, not as phrased. I mean, it is, it is true that power laws show up in a lot of places. Um, it, it is true that, uh, you know, you're never going to get rid of inequality, for example, because the rich get richer and the poor get poorer in, in, in a certain deterministic way. But that doesn't mean that, you know, there are 10 people in a, in a smoke filled room uh, deciding yeah. things. Um, that, that's a very different assertion. Right. Um, I, I think like even just in terms of setting the discourse is probably a, a more like nuanced like. I, well, I, think the, I, yeah. I do think I do think that it is interesting that, um, you know, Social media companies like Facebook and Twitter uh, and, and Google get so much attention that they get dragged before Congress to, to, you know, explain themselves and confess their sins. Meanwhile, like, you know, mainstream media is controlled by five major companies. You know, no, CBS, it's four now. It's four, I believe. Yes. Yeah. It's CBS, Viacom and, you know, NBC. Disney. Um, yeah. yeah. And these, are, these aren't just companies. They're, they're conglomerates, right? Like NBC, General Electric. Um, and you know these are the NPC, these are the people more, more like NPC. Never mind. Yeah. Well, yeah. These are these are the companies that you know took Andrew Yang off their off their polling, right? You know th these are and these are really um, genuinely uh, incumbent organizations, right? They're run by people who made a bunch of money in the in the mid, in the mid to late twentieth century. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. you know, Lauren, Lauren Michaels is still executive producing SNL after, you know, since the seventies. Right. Um, and so my big open question is what happens in the next 20 years, because we have this big generational overhang where the people who are controlling things are from drawn from a common co cohort, right. The boomers. Um, and you know, there's a chart that shows, you know, the average age of a, of a CEO of a, of a, in the fortune 500 has gone up 14 years over 14 years. So they, they, it's the same people. They haven't, they haven't left those positions to let younger people come in behind them. Likewise in academia, it, in, in the late eighties, yeah. uh, laws were changed to make it impossible to um, for, uh, mandate retirement. So pretty people, much. Yeah. Uh, but maybe yeah. that's partly a blessing in disguise. Cause look at young people today. I don't well, know. That, I, well, that's I why I stopped. <laughs> well, that's true. That's why I just stopped at the master's level because the thought of like, sacrificing another five like four to five to six years of my life in academia i mean this is when thanks this was a few years. no i well i know just... but <laughs> but i mean this this, was, podcasts uh, like yeah. this are a symptom of elite overproduction right like we Ex yeah. we, we have a, a lot of we have a lot of smart we have a lot of smart people who um who who should be doing you know who should be in positions of power in various in academia and government and in 
nonprofits and so on. Um, but it's a game of musical chairs and the geriatrics aren't getting out of their chair. Right. And, and, yeah, and when but they do get we out, were... they just eliminate the positions. My philosophy right. program that I went to, not to dox mm. myself, but it's pretty easy to find if you figure Niagara region, right? I went to a pretty unique philosophy program because we had Eastern and, and Continental. Now they just destroyed it because three professors retired. And in a small department, three professors going that have had l very long running courses that were integral to the program. I mean, you know, of course, the business school gets all the money, right? So, well, I don't, I, I don't know what they're doing with it. But Samuel, I wanted yeah. to make a comment on what you're saying because I know that you don't um, necessarily believe that there's a group of people sitting in a smoke-filled room making decisions. But as I've been doing my research for um, my dissertation, something that keeps coming up because my dissertation is on African American entrepreneurship, and something that keeps coming up. Um, is the benevolent organizations that um, basically supported these up and coming black communities. So specifically like um, you had like a group called the Odd Fellows, which was a black benevolent organization. And um, they had their own, they made money. This, their literal profit revenue model was by selling insurance. And a lot of these organizations made their money by selling insurance. And even one of the articles I just read um, said that um, there was a black organization um, that was helpful in this town in Kansas because they were there and they were all black. They were more invested in the community's survival. So I know that, um, you know, in modern days, we're we are being told that this is not what happened, but historical records show it pretty clear that a lot of these up and coming communities and these up and coming towns and, um, you know, all this stuff, especially when they started to move out West was by, you know, they had these benevolent organizations and I don't know what else you would call them besides secret societies. I mean, maybe it's not as um, seedy as it's been sold to us <laughs> on the Simpsons, but still like, there's no way to get around. There's, you know, these organizations that come together and make decisions on what they're going to do, you know? Yeah. But I mean, secret society is a, uh, uh, a loaded term for, for a club. Right. Um, I did, I did a lot of my, my own like thesis work on the rise and fall, the friendly societies and, and, and fraternity societies and stuff like that. Oh, um, so, you know, yeah. And, and, uh, yeah. And, and they sold toteens in the, in 1920s, <laughs> Um, do you know what you know what those? Oh, all the stuff they did. Good lord! I just... um, but those but those societies. I mean, they were they were they're just civil society. That's like the Knights of Columbus or anything else. Um, and it's not that they, uh, you know, maybe you know, I was in fraternity. We had a secret handshake, but I can tell you, we weren't plotting anything that that yeah. profound. Well, I um, think that, you know maybe on the yeah. lower levels. I mean, this is this is how it. This is the problem. Like, well, there, there is in general. There is a degree of nepotism, which is inevitable, right? So, like, have you ever wondered why, like, um, you know, you name all your favorite cast members from SNL and you find out that they're all, like, in the same Second City troupe, right? Like, how does that happen? Like, yeah. did, did, they just get, did, did they just get lucky and find, like, 10, uh, 10 improv comics that were, like, the best of their generation? Or what did one of them do really well and start getting favors for their friends from the from the same club, right? Um, or Kamala is an AKA, like that's one one reason why all of the educated blacks jumped on the train is because she's an AKA, okay? She's not black, but 
who's counting, you know, like right. they just, this was their soror and that's what they followed. Like this, yeah. if you see this type of stuff happen over and over again, you have to wonder at what point does it go from, oh, a coincidence to, you know, there's something else going on here. But, no, but the question goes back to how much could they do? Now, let's say, sure, we have the Skull and Bones. You remember The Good Shepherd? That was a great movie, by the way, <laughs> one of my favorites. Well, no, but and I want, I, but love, I think. Bush and uh, Carrie, like, what can they do? What is the extent to which this being in the club has any significance? Like, uh, Samuel and Hotep Sophia would probably differ in this, but Hotep Sophia, well, why, why would you say it's significant? Well, this is very important, though. This is very, though, this is part of the central topic. This is part of progress. We are progressing to an understanding about like, what this is. Like, so like, how did I get my job? I got my job because I was very active on Twitter. I did lots of blogging. And, um, you know, when I wanted to move to the United States, I already knew people. I had, I, I had a social network. I had social capital, right? And uh, people who knew my writing and, and knew and, and liked my writing, but also over and above that sort of had a, you know, an affiliation with me and a kind of acquaintance or a friendship. And, th and those things are everywhere, right? And it's not... Uh, there's no like one er secret society. It's like, we're all members, you know, there's, you know, uh, th th I think a lot of this is why there were a lot of anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theories was because the Jewish community was very, um, you know, organized and, and, hmm. uh, and, you know, you can call it nepotism, but it's just, it's just looking out for your own in the same way that, you know, if you had a old, old school community bank, they used to make character loans, right? But what it also comes down to oh, for God. me, being a Jew, being somebody who came from oh, Russia as a Russian right Jew. Now. No, 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 no. I don't care. I don't care because I want to talk oh. about this. So basically, like I always say, the people who, whether they're Jewish or not, who would not have the best interest of the United States and the people who live here and prosperity and family values, who don't have those interests at heart, regardless of whether or not they're Jewish or not, not me and not any other uh, Jew who thinks the way that I do would ever be a part of that club. And the idea that there is some inherent characteristic to people, I just think it's absolute bullcrap because you get people like Rousseau, who was a Frenchman, who came up with a lot of bad ideas that a lot of people started running with. And people who get into this club, regardless of whether there would be no Jews on the face of the earth, there will always be people who would go into any club and make use of that club if they have certain ways that they see the world. So this no, idea true, I find but to at, be At to the be same ridiculous. time, like, I, I do think that certain not to get like i don't you know buy into a lot of it but certain people do have certain attitudes about life like for example there is in within certain more esoteric circles um and lev you know you've studied the kabbalah a little bit there is a certain sense of like messianism throughout his, i mean walter benjamin talked about this a little bit i so i think like certain ideas kind of are more appealing not just to them but also other people i guess when you, well, no, if you're talking about religious groups, well, let, let's just let's just make sure yeah, we distinguish two things too, here. Like we can talk about like religious, let's say Hasidic Jews who obviously want the best for Hasidic Jews, just like a Muslim caucus would want the best for their particular. Uh, or the Mormons or, or the or Hungarians the, yeah, exactly. or the Canadians. Yeah. You know, I run yes, into a Canadian. We have an yes. instant. But if we're talking about policies that would affect not a particular religious group, but would be overarching policies that would determine what kind of entertainment we watch or, you know, how American society functions as a whole, that is somewhere where you have people who are Jewish who are on all kinds of, uh, you know, parts of the spectrum. You have people like Ludwig von Mises on one hand, and then on the other hand, you would have well, uh, Leon Trotsky, Lev, you know? Lev, I would say because it's not the Judaism... It's 
it's the Zionism. There's a totally different well, structure. No, but, whole, yeah. but I'm just saying, yeah. like, I know a lot of these people are, they happen to be Jewish, but Jewish is a religion. Like, yeah. a practice but, but, but or even there, if we're talking religion, about but even there, though, Sophia, if we're talking about Israel, I'm not going to open up this can of worms because I know that that is a can of worms. But all that I'm, I'm going to have to talk to you a little bit later on. We're going to have to talk in private. I want to give you some more information. Is this, uh, is this podcast called Just Asking Questions? Did I come on the wrong show? Yes, that's that's the secret thing. For but anyway, no, no, no. What I want to get to here is that if we're talking about well, the interest, I wanted to actually of, get say, back to the progress, well, no, real thing, quick, but also poverty. Real quick, I wanted to real quick, real quick. Talk about that. If we're talking about if we're talking about the interest that people would have in a particular country, that I see in no way playing let's say to the interests of uh, you know to make it worse for any other country if we're just talking about like defending israel and that's that now people could make broad statements afterwards and i'd be happy to discuss this with you at another time but the point being once again is that regardless of where a person is from they end up if they are a square peg they're going to fill into the square hole the square peg in this case being their worldview how they see america how they see you know what people should aspire to and how people should be you know whether people should be run more by government intervention as opposed to letting people be more independent there are people who because of uh you know the things that they were taught as a child they were born and they get used to certain ways of being uh based on the schooling that they get there's a lot of progressive uh quote-unquote progressive new york schools that are getting absolutely wokenized and a lot of parents right now thanks to people like barry weiss are starting to oh, uh, speak gosh. out yes are starting to speak out against this yeah. so my whole point is again we have people on different uh, parts of the spectrum from different places and i'm going to judge people not by any characteristic of where they were born or what color their skin is or anything like that i'm going to judge people what, by what time, they bring Lev, to the table i think the problem is like i mean the way the, the the unfortunate part is that the people who are standing in opposition to sort of the, a lot of the current orthodoxy, like let's say that James Lindsay's the world. That's a good example. Okay. It sure. seems that we always on the podcast we mentioned Barry, so you have to mention James Lindsay. He's like, I don't know why it just happens. God God wills it. Um, like the, when they talk about the way like you know all these schools are getting wokeified and it's like this very like uh, invasive force that is like quantifiable like a property that you can like say it's kind of like a cancer cell that you know you have to cut out to, to me like i think things are a bit more nuanced in that it's it's ignoring like trends that have been going on in general and even if you were to like separate like the ultra progressive i would say like radical liberal politics there, there's still a, a lot of other factors at play just for example the way like you mentioned universities the way that like it's become like commodified it's become sort of like a corporate model I mean, it's true like that the universities overwhelmingly like are stifling when it comes to setting the agenda. But at the same time, there's these other forces that the James Lindsay's, the Ben Shapiro's of the world don't really talk about that do contribute a great deal as to why all, all of these institutions at once are sort of beholden to certain political fads or moods. I mean, even just like... Yeah, go ahead. I want to add, just, as, yeah. as a Native American, a person who's from America, I would just like to add like my perspective on that because I think that because America has sort of like always been a blend, um, willingly or unwillingly, however you describe that, yeah. but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. much di it's much different to it, it's it's much more different or easier to just put people in groups 
and identify the groups together and to say, oh, these people are like each other based yeah, on whatever characteristics you have. And I think that because America has been uh, infiltrated or uh, colonized by so many people who don't have a historical tie to America, it, they bring along with them the stuff from their other countries. So I think that's where you have this huge introduction of when, like, now every you know, local, hating this group, yeah. hating that group, whatever, whatever, every whatever. Every conflict that's becomes international, really, yeah. Exactly, because that's not really an American thing per se. I mean, um, there's lots of things that are American, but I don't think that, um, you know, dividing and conquering people based on um, where they're from per se uh, is like a thing that you would find as a, a common thread among Americans, which I always try to remind people that there is a difference between Americans from America, black and white and blacks specifically who are not from American, who are not American lineage. These two groups of people, especially related to blacks, cannot be compared not the same they have a different all. experience yeah if you have this bull on the show tell me i want to be on my best behavior but I well, they, they, have, they do have think. a different experience but that's but then again this is try but the, I, I think goes to why why race racialization hasn't been a very productive change shift in the discourse mm. right because it, it it covers up all these ethnic differences which are not racial at all right like like you're saying uh hotep sophia like i i i know you know nigerian immigrants who are some of the most red-pilled people i've ever met totally <laughs> different but they are totally different from Ghanaians because i know a lot of Ghanaians. they're not super red-pilled they're there, more there are people liberal you know right. it's, it's so, just yeah. different race is not the the right uh ontology i don't think there, there are people though who um I don't want to mention his name. He's pretty uh, controversial. Uh, Tariq Nasheed, uh, people like that. I know he's like totally sensationalistic, but there are a lot of people that do say that in America, they want to, rather than affirm what was before, like, for example, with the Nation of Islam stuff, they wanted to sort of like affirm their own identity as Black Americans rather than sort of going back to a very um, fragmented relationship to their And you know African who doesn't want right? that? So. Like people, Africans don't want that. I mean, Islanders don't want that. They don't want Black Americans to be rooted in their Black American mm -hmm. identity because it, lose, it leaves them all the group. You know, they get left off the list. If you are <laughs> an African from Africa, you need to be on a different list as Black Americans. Like I, that's why but I then the advocate problem for going back to the term to, of Negro to describe us because that's the only way you could get around all these other groups like Brits or like Islanders being looped in with Black Americans. Like me, who I know like, you know, I know 10 generations of my family from Maryland on both sides. Like there's no getting around it. I'm an American as an American. So, it's, and then when you say to like the, the the people who don't like America, then they're like, oh, you're, you know, you're Black. No, you're, you're a person of color. No, I'm not a person of color. I'm an American. I'm a Black American, but I'm an American. So, and then when you go overseas, no matter what, oh, you're American. They, they can spot Americans from a mile away. Yeah, like they, the they even know. Don't yeah, understand Americans are Americans. Yeah. It's here. It's crazy. But then that goes back to the central question of if the like 
American view of things of like having a popular myth that holds all of these different disparate groups together, if that's just going to become further another fiction or if it still has a sort of animating spirit, because that's sort of like the idea of like progress is sort of equated with Americanism as being like, you know, the shining rock on the hill or whatnot. Is that a total fantasy uh, or, or do you think that still has some life in it to both uh, Hotep Sophia and, and uh, well, even you, Lev, also and Samuel, even, but also I wanted me. to get into oh, poverty because so uh, this is an issue I myself am in- interested in. Um, but but let's talk about that first before yeah. we get into Samuel's specific work. So. And by the way, I noticed that I accidentally muted myself for a particular portion. I'm not sure what I muted myself on. Yeah, but believe, again, me, just... be- believe me, Em, I do wish sometimes that I could probably mute Lev. I had that ability. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm oh, kidding. Oh. If only, if only. only. No, you're not that lucky, Gio. But anyway, no, I just want to say again, in case this part was muted and maybe not, I don't care. But again, my policy, open door for anybody who wants to come in as long as they get to a certain level where they can vibe with the people that they want to well, be we have in the that, uh, but vicinity <laughs> of. But what's the other choice? Like, that's the thing. I really don't see what the other choice here is because we're an internet interconnected society. You know, unless we're going to go back to the Dark Ages or Middle Ages, whatever you want to call it. You know, we're connected. We got airplanes. We got trains. We got the Internet. So the best that I can come up with us uh, handling here is to just have, like, a certain rule as far as you have to, regardless of where you're from, if you can get to that level. And I think that works for everybody because the people that would complain about any group of people where they say, well, this group of people is so and so and so. Well, then, if people from that group of people come there and act in a different way and would actually be known ahead of time i'm not sure how this could be I'm, I'm sure this could be possible i don't think it's that hard to figure out like whether they would be able to fit in then great then that argument goes out the window then if they are able to fit in if they if they treat their kids the same way you treat your kids and if they bestow upon their kids the same level of wisdom that you bestow upon your kids then you've already got something there you know, and there are places well, let's, around the let's world move on. that are we were, different. Again, we're straying from the... Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. But I just wanted to get that out just in case I got muted at that part. I don't, I don't care. Okay. Uh, I do have, you know, something to say on this. I think, um, like, if you look at what Americans mean by multiculturalism when they when they talk about it favorably, or, or not favorably, what they really mean is a kind of monoculturalism. Like, they, they're actually saying, uh, you know, adopt this sort of, like, very waspy Protestant view of uh, assimilation, right? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, yeah. and I think it, it contrasts, uh, it's something that, you know, as a Canadian, you, you pick up on because it is a bit different than our approach in Canada. You know, growing up in Nova Scotia, for for instance, you know, I knew a German from from a, from a Gaelic person, right? <laughs> like we knew it from their yeah. last name. We had, uh, there's uh, actually Gaelic language schools um, or, you know, going out West. It, pr- partly this is a, a byproduct of the fact that we have um, a big French-speaking part of the country, literally New France, and they were, you know, we, and and that and that contrasts with the English-speaking part of the country, both white, both European, but very culturally d- different, right? And so, uh, our version of multiculturalism in Canada has has been much more pluralistic in the sense that it's more a mosaic than a melting pot that we recognize. And there's problems with that. I'm a critic of our. There, there are there are definitely there, there are definitely problems of it, but I think one. But of America, the, it's, yeah, it's the kind we'll of. Take some- the we'll kind of unhyped, like Italians uh, 
for yeah, instance, the, like Geo's Italian. Oh, go, go on, go on. I was going to say, like the, like the myth of like the unhyphenated American, right? Like that we're all yeah. going to come here and assimilate. That that worked for the Scots-Irish, but, <laughs> you know, like, like you just, but we don't want everyone to become just this hodgepodge just sure. this sort of we want people to uh, retain part but, of their but, but, but it worked too well for us though. italians unfortunately in my like when us italians when we became white people that was a total disaster for us but i would say that i'm just gonna say that actually unhyphenated american did not even apply to irish until like yeah, almost the 80s right. like it's right. the, it's the yeah, craziest thing like they weren't like white that's why i always say like how can you what is even white like why even do that to people because especially in america because people do know their lineage and their history and so to just group them all together based on skin tone now when they've been you know black or whatever right. all the way up until that point is kind of like pure insanity and i have to like but to play, but I when think i have play. conversation with black people i have to say like what do you mean by white and almost nine a hundred percent of the time they really mean rich like so this ain't rich people <laughs> well, say lost, the elite yeah. you know what i mean like 